Oh, I am slain. Hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene. This week we're talking about one William Shakespeare. This is the second episode in our biography semester and we chose the bard to talk about basically so that Aaron had a platform to air his fanboy isms. Yes. I mean, if you couldn't tell by that opening quotes, oh. which is, oh, I am slain, one of Shakespeare's most famous uh, lines. Mm-hmm. Do you remember or do you know why I chose that? Not totally sure. When we were first getting to know each other when we were 17, I asked you, what's your favorite line, either from a book or from a Shakespeare play? And you said it was Polonius in Hamlet saying, oh, I am slain. That's very... <laughs> the most iconic Shakespeare line of all. Polonius cringe, saying, oh, I am slain. It's very cringe of me. You said, uh, I, I think your reasoning was something like, only Shakespeare can have a character announce his own death. I feel like I didn't say that. I feel <laughs> I like you're putting you, no, words No, no, you did. Mouth. I'll track it down. Okay. I'll post the screenshots. <laughs> the receipts. So we're going to be talking about Shakespeare, his life, and a bit about the Renaissance as well. To start, Aaron is going to have a moment on the soapbox to tell us everything he loves about Shakespeare. Well, here's the reason I said I should do this. Because every time we do an episode, that, or most often when we do an episode that one of us is genuinely has been yearning for for a long time and is really mm-hmm. excited for, or both of us, we always come away like, that was a mess. Mm-hmm. So the conversation just always kind of indulges in too many different divergences and you get too scatterbrained however focused or how prepared we try to be to counter this to counter that so i just thought at the start i'll just list some things to to kind of clear the air for sure and the point of our podcast is imagining a beautiful sustainable tactile future and the point of the biography semester is finding people past present future who inspire this vision and obviously, which with Shakespeare, we're not envisioning a Renaissance revival, a Renaissance Renaissance. But <laughs> yeah, Renfair. It's also because we don't know a lot about the historical figures. So the episodes mm-hmm. aren't biographical because Shakespeare, for instance, surprisingly little is known about his life, mm-hmm. the lost years, etc. So it's it's more that we use them as a springboard for conversation. Let's say today, adjacent to the idea of. A playwright, the Renaissance, theater, or maybe specific themes from specific plays. So, I mean, my favorite thing about Shakespeare, when I was racking my brains to uh, answer this question, is his sense of humor. It's true. I realize that there's so few books that I will actually chuckle to myself as I read them. And the Mm. fact that there are some from 400 years ago that weren't even intended to be read as books. You know, they were originally, they were plays for the stage to be listened to and watched. The fact that I can still kind of laugh at the wordplay is, I think, a really spectacular thing. And we're both big pun people, we obviously. Are. But there's also just the small little character tweaks and specific parts of, I guess, universal personality that he manages to capture in little throwaway lines and stuff that I just find really, I guess it's cute in a way, but also it makes you smile as you read it. Yeah, he really mixed a lot of genres together. Up until that point, plays had often been morality plays or just like strictly one thing. But I found he was very groundbreaking in his choice to make tragedies funny and the comedies tragic. That's what I was thinking. Like even, I mean, there's the obvious, there's the really kind of obvious comic relief characters in the tragedies. Like you'll just have 
random scene with the the jester or in Hamlet, it's the guys who are digging the graves, I think. Mm-hmm. But also, like as we said, like Polonia saying, "Oh, I am slain." There's there's a kind of there's a levity to that in what's otherwise kind of a a dark place. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really welcome. The other thing I really like about them is how educational they are. To me, as an aspiring poet and writer, obviously the value is goes out saying but also just how many references there are to various fields that you're like how did Shakespeare know about this how did he know so much about birds and flowers and ships and Mm. just like the random science of his time a lot lot of which is outdated today but I think that's a really impressive thing you'll like I've learned new things about nature from reading Shakespeare from his metaphors and the things the characters say so when you reference the footnotes, if you're reading an annotated version at the bottom of the page, then it's almost like, I think, scrolling down a Wikipedia where you can go to from hyperlink to hyperlink and kind of whatever catches your interest, you can read more about later. Mm-hmm. Thirdly is the breadth of appeal. Mm-hmm. As in the theaters at the time, obviously, there were it ranged in class, the audience members. But also even now when you engage with it, you can do so on a strictly entertainment level, and I think a lot of them are still funny, like and and, mm-hmm. and in, engaging from a moment to moment thing. If you go and watch it or read it, and you can just kind of laugh at the silly clown guy, or you can obviously get really into it and analyze it. So it's kind of like you you choose your own level of engagement. Yeah, you can take it strictly for the funny story, or read it as a metaphor, or as a history. And even during his lifetime, obviously, there were people doing all of that. Like, the royals were engaged with it, but so were all other economic classes. And I think it's cool how that has played out in terms of there's Shakespeare in the park all over the world. So that's completely free, accessible to everyone to go see. The people putting it on are professionals, but they still want to carry on this legacy of making Shakespeare accessible. But then, of course, you can also go to the Royal Academy and see it performed. Yeah, that's what I love because so much of the rest of theater is kind of gated or at least has the connotation of being so. And Shakespeare to this day is, I really think, for the common folk and often Mm -hmm. by the common folk. Yeah, I think that's reflected too in the amount of adaptations, which we'll talk about a bit later, but... The stories are so universal, but also so primed for reinterpretation and modernization or gnomification, whatever it may be. Yeah, Gnomeo and Juliet. And along those lines, something else I love about him was the Ovidian roots of a lot of his stories. Mm. As in, today we often kind of discredit Hollywood and say like, they're not telling any new stories, it's just remakes. But Shakespeare barely wrote anything original if he mm-hmm. did in terms of plot lines and i love that kind of lineage where you can trace a myth from very very early tellings to medieval theater to shakespeare to modern movies that are being remade like i mm-hmm. think that's a really fun uh, kind of demonstration of humanity i guess as this kind of like relay over time yeah. and then Lastly, this sounds a little bit weird, but it's the fact that Shakespeare's English. I don't mean British. I mean that he's writing in English, which mm-hmm. maybe it's just me, but I feel like English has this kind of connotation of being ugly. 
Okay. But Shakespeare kind of perfected it to a point that you feel almost proud to be speaking that language and it makes you want to speak better, um, which is maybe different from if, if, if we're talking about like Moliere or someone from another language. Mm. I actually had a dream about this last night. Mm. It was that we were watching a play or watching a program on TV or something and they were speaking in like Shakespearean English and it took a while for me to tune in to realize that it was English. Yeah. Because sometimes you hear, like, I guess mainly because we live in Quebec, someone speaking, you don't know what language they're speaking, and then you yeah. eventually realize it's French or English, mm-hmm. so, like, I understand. But because of different accents and stuff, it takes a while. And I find with Shakespeare, it takes you a while to get into it. Like, the first few Shakespeare plays that I watched or read, I, it, I might as well have been reading another language. I didn't get it. But it didn't take too long for it to click and for the beauty of the language to come through. That's a good lead into this week's villain of the week. Ooh. Do, 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 do. Villain of the week. I had a few ideas. Obviously, my first option was I was going to choose a Shakespeare villain, mm. Iago from Othello, being one of my favorite Shakespeare characters, period. And then I was going to choose Christopher Marlowe, who was kind of like the, mm. the antagonistic playwright of his time, and they were real life villains. And then I was going to choose Romeo and Juliet or some such <laughs> adaptation. But to get a little bit more personal or maybe mean with it, I feel like the spirit of Villain of the Week is it should be, it should be a little bit mean-hearted. Okay. What I've gone for is modern middle school and high school English teachers and the <laughs> curriculums for how they introduce Shakespeare okay, to so The villain kids. is the curriculum. That pared-down version of yeah. Hamlet that we all read. No, it's the teachers. I'm just, because curriculum is not a villain. That's just a thing. Okay. It's like when Time Magazine said Person of the Year, you. It's like, uh, you got to pick someone specific. Okay, so it's middle school English teachers. Yeah, middle school and high school English teachers. Because, well, why do you think they bungle the introduction of Shakespeare? Or do you think they, do you think it's done as well as it could be? I had a really good experience with okay. the introduction of Shakespeare. Genuinely, like, it's what got me interested in English. So Here, here were my points. We, I don't think we the students get any choice in the matter, which makes Mm. them come away resenting Shakespeare or kind of mocking it. There's such a breadth to his canon. I mean, I'm currently in the middle of trying to read everything Shakespeare wrote, Mm -hmm. which I undertook because I was like, oh, it's what, a dozen? No, (laughs) it's more than three dozen, Uh, plus plays, plus sonnets. But I don't think students get that sense when you're going through because you hear about Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, Macbeth, maybe a Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm-hmm. And all of those could be entertaining. It could be what the students want to read. But I feel like if they got to choose it as a class, let's say, given uh, a brief synopsis of each, yeah. then maybe they'd, they'd be a bit more willing. I think this in general in school, as in you're not letting the, what do we say? Letting the chickens run the farm. I get that wrong every time. Mm-hmm. We're not letting them do that though. Mm-hmm. But we're giving the illusion maybe. Mm-hmm. which I think for teenagers can help quite a bit. But also it gives them a bit more of a personal connection. Yeah, I can see that. Also, it's the fact that we don't know any other writers. It's true. It's similar to, in at least the Canadian curriculum, you know one playwright, you know one poet. That's it, basically. You know one world war. You know one world war. Or should I say one history. Mm-hmm. One, one world history. And you know probably... A thousand maths. 
Mm-hmm. It's very it's very biased towards this. And this is another reason I was kind of choosing the curriculum because when you read into how Shakespeare was educated, it's a world apart from how people today are educated. And I'm not saying it's just, well, that was better, that it was all rote memorization and that he was introduced to Ovid at like age nine and he knew Latin and some Greek. Like it's not that that is just entirely better, but I do think we steer too far into STEM today, which I feel I mention every week, so I don't want to exaggerate too much. <laughs> yeah. Can I give you the, can I recount the story of my first Shakespeare exposure besides like the cartoons and mm-hmm. stuff? Well, like Shakespeare cartoons, I didn't. No, just like besides Nomeo and okay. Lion King and stuff. So my first explicit exposure to Shakespeare was in grade eight and our teacher handed out this really pared down script didn't tell us what it was it wasn't called Macbeth it's just like called something did it say the Scottish play though maybe she was trying to be theatrical or traditional maybe it could have been the Scottish play but it, we didn't know what it was it didn't say Shakespeare it said like some other thing and so we started acting it out and then it's just like there's lines in it that you know from pop culture like double double boil and trouble like yeah. all that stuff and then we realized slowly that it's Shakespeare and we're acting it out she doesn't tell us to like analyze it she just gives us each a part we all sit around and we act it out and I thought that was a really cool way to introduce it because that's how it was meant to be yeah experienced either through acting or through watching and so some people weren't acting some people were just watching I thought it was really really great of her that is great and then in the the next grade we had this teacher who she was she was used to teaching 12th grade, mm-hmm. so she definitely went a bit hard with the English, and I loved it. That was what really got me into English, and she, we all had a copy of Midsummer Night's Dream. We're all assigned a part and read cover to cover the whole book well, for the good whole for play. Well, good we really had great. What we had was, <laughs> for some reason, just like a third of Hamlet, because like we weren't given the full text, mm-hmm. which pretty much ana- amounted to a synopsis. And we watched some clips of it on YouTube. Yeah, that was like Merchant of Venice. We, did we didn't it even watch the full way. film. They were just like, <laughs> well, this, this, you remember this scene here? Because it was like, I guess there wasn't a full film available on YouTube. Oh, no. <laughs> another argument or another question is about like modernizing the text entirely as in The Lion King mm-hmm. while keeping the same themes or presenting the original text and kind of trusting the students to understand the magic of it or learn the magic of it. Mm-hmm. I think a good example of the latter is the Romeo and Juliet movie with Leonardo DiCaprio from the 90s, the Baz Luhrmann one, mm-hmm. which is set in modern times, but they obviously jarringly speak in the full Shakespearean tongue, which I think I think does a really good introduction, personally. It took a few watches for me to get that <laughs> film because it's so just like, what is happening? There's like the chase scene at the beginning with like yeah. the at the gas station yeah <laughs> but it's so good in hindsight and it really yeah it gets to the heart of what shakespeare is a kind of timeless but it, it's the text is the yeah the play is the thing but the text is a, the really crucial it's about understanding the the art of it and the music of it like i like the modernizations <laughs> but if if there's no original i mean as i was saying shakespeare it's not the stories that make it so significant it's the the form the form of it yeah mm-hmm. so it's it's like music or painting in that way and i think when we kind of reduce it to he hath or wherefore because that's kind of my experience how 
what teachers put the emphasis on when they're showing it to kids. Mm. It, it kind of sets us off on the wrong foot. Mm. This is a good segue into my segment about the Renaissance and the first lesson of the solo scene. So I mean, like a gong for the first lesson. Bing. Sure. So the Renaissance. I didn't know much about it besides the obvious Donatello, Michelangelo, Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and the fact that in Montreal, there's a thrift store called Renaissance. We saw Michelangelo's stuff. Like, we've been to Renaissance. No, uh, I know. I'm joking. <laughs> okay, okay. Sit in black. <laughs> but I didn't know too much about exactly how it came to be. And I remember when we were in Florence, I was like, who are these Medici characters? Mm-hmm. So I learned, I'm going to give a brief history of the Renaissance. There's an argument that the Renaissance isn't like how we interpret it as like one movement because it happened over 300 years from 1300 to 1600. So a lot of the people that we think about as Renaissance thinkers or artists, they weren't even contemporaries. They were like born 100 years after each other. Shakespeare, for instance, was very late in it. 1564. So the Renaissance also didn't hit England until pretty late because they were engaged in the Rose Wars and the Hundred Years War all of that stuff. So they were a bit preoccupied still in the Dark Ages. And then the Enlightenment, sorry, (laughs) Java, your people. But then eventually (laughs) it came over from Italy. And the reason the Renaissance happened was basically, as I said, the Medici's. Italy was becoming very wealthy because they were trading textiles with the Ottoman Empire. And the reason that their textiles were so valuable is because they used alum, which we talked about in our natural dye episode. Yeah, we did throwback which fixes dyes to fabric which means that the fabrics will stay bright for a long time but they were getting the alum from the ottoman empire so they were still kind of reliant on them but then the pope's nephew discovered an alum store within italy and the pope said sweet we don't have to rely on this other empire we can just make the fabrics and export it we don't have to worry about like the trade and so he picked the medici family to be in charge of the alum mines so they got super 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 rich from those mines and they could basically put the money towards paying artists architects educators to make this beautiful city and the thing with the renaissance is that it was only really pertaining to the top five percent of the population the other 95 percent were still just living on farms pretty much uninfluenced by it Mm -hmm. the way that we often think of like the renaissance is like everyone was getting this great education and stuff but that wasn't until like the the really later end of it so a lot of people that were alive during this time like were completely untouched by it but this brings us to england where you're talking about shakespeare's education how he was learning the ancient languages learning about ovid and the thing about this is that it was so new because before the renaissance western society didn't really have access to these yeah, was, writings it, it and stuff kind of characterized by a rediscovery and a re-emphasis mm-hmm. on the ancient world right and again that actually came from the ottoman empire who had been studying the ancient texts for a long time and then through this trade route or whatever this relationship they got access to ovid and plato and aristotle and everyone and so this idea of being a well-rounded person kind of came about humanism humanism yes which goes over my head a little bit but it's basically like until humanism came about god was the center of everything and humanism wasn't godless you can kind of tell based on how much they were painting 
deities and stuff and it wasn't always just forced Mm -hmm. it was in their own time but it's thinking of humans as like innately valuable and can come up with ideas on their own so when like someone's sick it's not just appealing to god it's what if there's a solution for this (laughs) yeah what What? if there's medicine yeah (laughs) it's thinking like that of like wait we have like the power of god within us to do things was kind of humanism and so the humanities from humanism were born, which were literature, philosophy, history. And as you were saying, there's kind of disproportionate focus in school today on STEM. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the analog I wanted to make about the Renaissance because we haven't really mentioned the solar scene. So if we can kind of draw this conversation back to the point of the podcast, which is designing a utopia in the future, Mm -hmm. it's that feeling of inspiration and optimism Mm -hmm. which i think is innate to having a golden age Mm because i think that's really key that they were like so revering the latin and greek worlds and they were thinking i mean it's now we would say it's a it's glossing over history too much or it's idealizing Mm -hmm. the past too much but i just think that can be such a practical functional thing because it's kind of like as a collective you say well we've done it before and that means we can definitely do it again. We can build towards mm-hmm. this really wonderful thing again. Whereas now, I, today, I think, one, as you said, whatever kind of renaissance or frontiers that we're on, it feels like it's in soulless digital advancements that no one really likes. Mm-hmm. And two, we look back on the past, not with rose-tinted glasses, but with the opposite. Mm-hmm. We say like, oh, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Which kind of implies we can't make anything that wonderful you know what i mean yeah because it's like if there's no model to follow and the only future outlooks that we have laid out for us in literature and film is kind of bleak it's like what are we yeah like having optimism is almost impossible so i think perhaps putting on the rose tinted goggles on purpose yeah, like that's what i do that's intentionally what, that's what I think you should do and being like okay, I'm an intelligent person. I can hold two beliefs at once. Like this Mm -hmm. is kind of humanism of like, it's not black and white. So you can look at ancient Greece. You can look at like all of the ancient civilizations and be like, yeah, 95% of the people were suffering, but there were these like interesting ideas that we can perhaps pull and like try and rework for the good of all instead of just the good of the elite. Also, I... And maybe this is us retroactively looking back on it, but it seems like they had this self-awareness in t- in the sense of progress and optimism. Like they viewed themselves on the cusp of things. Mm. A self-aware sense of movement or progress, whereas it feels today that what few arts we do kind of collectively engage in are either stagnant or viewed to be stagnant or irrelevant or viewed to be irrelevant you know what i mean like Mm. the average joe will watch the oscar and be like i hate all these Mm -hmm. or we'll look at theater opera live music and be like that's gated that's not for us high art what a joke Mm -hmm. literature who reads that you know what i mean like new books who is reading that so it's kind of like there isn't that shared dominant form which i don't know if it needs to be one medium but there needs to be somewhere some senses of there's room to grow here and we're doing it kind of thing Mm. yeah when you learn about art history it's like there's modernism postmodernism, 
post postmodernism, and it's just like this just feels like we're just somehow making Doesn't, everything worse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it makes you feel like there is no room for improvement. And it's like obviously there is. Like, why would there be a point in history where you can't make art any better? I want to talk a bit about theatre specifically. You and I were saying yesterday, maybe we should become musical theatre people, which I feel <laughs> like is is kind of like Ant saying, like maybe we should become butterflies. At least for me, because I know you dance and sing and stuff, but it just seems so... Uh, I don't know if you can put that on. I feel like you kind of have to be born in it. You but have to be a theater kid. It's probably worth the efforts. Mm. And I was reminded of my ill-fated one audition in life for a play. And you got a main character. It wasn't ill-fated. You weren't there. Oh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you I didn't there. see the audition. <laughs> Which was one of Iago's soliloquies from Othello. So I was trying to be evil. <laughs> oh no! Glad I and wasn't there. It's for a university play, which wasn't even a Shakespeare one. I, it was Doctor Faustus. That's what I was trying to get a role in. Yeah. I think it's probably one of the bravest things I've ever done. Which it's... might sound really innocuous to most people, but it's a scary thing doing theatre when you have never done that before. Mm-hmm. And so this is why one of my points for the solo scene is. It just seems like such a perfect way of raising children. Because so often, say, I mean, we were hearing a couple of weeks ago about menu anxiety. Yeah. It's a thing with young people. We feel afraid when we have to waiters order. come and yeah. ask for their food, which I think is kind of just means anxiety, but people like putting prefixes like that. But it just seems like if you shove kids on stage from a young age, it would reduce kind of a lot of that or just eliminate it. Well, I was a part of a theater troupe, you remember, <laughs> and the characters there were characters indeed, and everyone ended up, I remember there was one person who was like, I'm going to be the first female prime minister. I know that there's technically been a female prime minister, but like... Where? In Canada? In Canada. It was for like a month or something. Okay. Um, so she was always like, I'm going to be the first female prime minister, and then there was the really sciencey one, there's the one who's going to be an author, and it was just like a... Is not everyone there wanted to be actors. Mm. Really, one or two people maybe but, wanted to be actors. But what you're saying is it maybe fosters a sense of ambition nonetheless and mm-hmm. also confidence. confidence is a key thing. Like, you think about the theater kid, the burgeoning theater kid archetype, which mm-hmm. I feel like is, is a click now more than ever. And I don't think everyone should be like that because there's a kind of obnoxiousness to it and a kind of vanity. Mm-hmm. But I do think that a toned down version of that maybe offers a healthier understanding of performativity than how most people are already filming themselves lip syncing or mm-hmm. taking pictures of themselves every day. Yeah, there's like the projection, there's the Yeah, being... I mean for one thing they're more talented at it. Like they're better speakers, they're yeah. better presenters, they're more like more charismatic that kind of thing mm-hmm. i mean i think if one of us was a theater kid it would help this podcast tremendously it's true there's <laughs> also the community aspect which is something i really wanted to talk about yeah. as the second lesson for the soul scene which is there aren't too many times when you really get to come together in community and there's nothing like putting on a play we also know that making films is a really similar camaraderie that happens mm. but i suppose putting on a film is is really similar to putting on a play in that you're intensively with these people. Yeah. I think in terms of the production, it would be quite similar. I think a play would be more bonding because every night you have to walk the tightrope together. And also, 
there are some other elements of movies and theater that or contrast i just wanted to interject quickly Mm. one is that as an audience member you feel much more of a connection to the people on stage than you do on screen because it's like there is no big glass thing separating you I remember when we went to Shakespeare in the Park, the next day I saw one of the actors just biking around and I was like, I had the instinct to say hi, but I'm like, he doesn't know who I am. Right, but it's, so there's that thing, there's the, oh, he's part of the world thing, rather Mm -hmm. than, oh, Bradley Cooper, he's not part of this world, he's some ethereal being uh, in Hollywood. But there's also the, I could do that. Mm. Like, technically, you could just jump on stage and do that. Yeah. You won't. Uh, and you probably practically couldn't, but in theory you could, whereas you can't enter a movie or, you know, like you're separate from those things. Yeah. And thirdly, yeah, it's that tension of this could fail at any moment. Whereas the only problem with a movie is there could be a problem with the electronics or the projection, which is entirely different. It's not mm-hmm. riding on a human performance every night. And fourthly, there's much more emphasis on the text in the theater, which is why we talk about playwrights much more than we talk about writers of screenplays on films because mm. films you have the director there's another art form which is camera movements and editing that kind of thing whereas on stage the word's the thing yeah yeah there's barely even props and stuff in a lot of them it's just the yeah the word i think theater it can also be a really cool tool for localized entertainment because with film it's more global like, there's really no limit to who can see a film, but there's always a limit to who can see a play unless it's recorded. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting activism tool. I was reading stories of people who used to, like, in the 80s and stuff, go around doing these. I mean, it's probably ancient. It's not just in the 80s. But <laughs> people going around and doing plays to try and, like, persuade a political vote or whatever. Yeah, that was in the 80s. The, just the 80s, just or the, the 1980s. 80s. Yeah. Just the 80s BC. Yeah. That was about um. So all throughout history, people have gone around performing plays to try and persuade people. And I think it's kind of interesting. I don't think the propaganda element is what I'm trying to say is good in the solo scene. But it'd be cool if a group of local activists got together and they were like, we really want to work on this one, like food sovereignty. So we're going to put on a food sovereignty play about a rabbit who has to go to the grocery store to get carrots. Even in Shakespeare's England, and he may have even been a part of it, it, mm-hmm. was, it was traveling companies sponsored by the royals going around to try and boost uh, opinion on, on the Protestants. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, that's always been key. And I guess the modern analog is like Hollywood propaganda for the military complex or something like that. But it's, mm-hmm. it's not the same. It's not soulful. Yeah, and I think this way it can also be positive and not so imposing because it can be the people in the area talking to other people in the area so it's not like a prescription it's just like a we live here we want this we're gonna put on this show people will like it i think there's that and there's also the element of local theater as in here's a landmark like here's the globe theater Mm. which cinema doesn't really have because even though it could be a, a really famous cinema where there's been a lot of famous premieres and um people who have passed through those doors it's showing the same films most likely as everywhere else, even if they're slightly better copies. Mm-hmm. Like this could be, you go to Montreal to see the blank, which I think is such a cool kind of, yeah, like the Coliseum. I think that's really cool. Our home province had the Neptune Theater with like the Neptune Theater group, yeah, which was kind of a landmark, and you'd go there to oh, see yeah. 
their performances, but they'd also sometimes come travel around. I thought that was really cute, and it was like similarly iconic. There was like <laughs> there were actually two theater troops in Nova Scotia. There was the Neptune one, but then there was another one that was um, Acadian, so it was French and English, like Acadian French, and they didn't have as much of a budget, so they often put on like similar plays. So you like I'd talk to you, and you'd be like, "Yeah, I saw that one," and they'd like travel around a bit. Maybe not you, but other Nova Scotians. And the final thing that I was thinking about the lessons from theater is how it's interdisciplinary. The people who are often in theater can also sing and dance, but they can also have an idea of blocking, of stage direction, of lighting, because it's all, you're all one group. Yeah. You're not operating in silos because everything you're doing impacts other people. Cues. Costumes. Costumes. Getting money. Mm-hmm. dealing with that person, dealing with this person, kicking someone out if they're being rude. Like, you know, it's more hands-on all mm-hmm. around. Uh, and it kind of brings full circle to the idea of the Renaissance men yeah. or woman. Of course. And the Renaissance human. <laughs> Whenever I was trying to look up like how to be a Renaissance man, it was like how to be a Renaissance man slash woman. It's like it's me and man and like the human. Anyway, so <laughs> I think being a Renaissance man is a cool goal in life. And it's also counter to the internet-y idea of everyone having a calling. I was griping about this to you. I was like, I don't know what my calling is. And you were like, why do you have to have just one thing? And I know that's like so simple, but it's it's kind of true. And I think it hinders us from ever getting started on one thing because you're trying to find the perfect thing. But really, your life is long enough that you can do at least two things, it's, if not more. It's also what you were just saying that even the one thing is never the one thing. Like what it, Shakespeare, part of the reason he was so good at writing was because he knew just so many random mm-hmm. stuff. Like he was reading broadly and presumably talking to people broadly. It's even been discovered that in a lot of really, really top of the top of their game professional athletes, like the best in the world, there's a correlation at least between trying multiple different sports at a young age mm-hmm. as in it's not necessarily the person who just hyper focuses on rowing from a really really from an infant who becomes the best rower mm-hmm. so i just think yeah, versatility is a great thing and economically we're kind of encouraged to um try and go deep in something so that we can monetize it these days mm-hmm. rather than maybe broaden your horizons the death of the hobby Everything's a side hustle. I had a passage from one of the plays that I wanted to read off. And I was practicing it over the week, but now I feel like it's not going to go very well because I was practicing it kind of standing up. But obviously we sit down to record this podcast. Also watch us on YouTube. We're here. We have a tiny cypress in frame today. We're just petting it right now. And that's what always spooks me at night. Because silhouetted, it looks like an evil triangular uh, ghost girl. But this is a passage from As You Like It. Slightly overshadowed, I think, in the same play by the All the World's a Stage sequence. It's by Duke Senior, and I just wanted to read it off because I think it really embodies the kind of writing that Shakespeare just does better than anybody ever and whoever will. So it says, Now my co-mates and brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious courts? Here fill we not the penalty of Adam, 
the season's difference as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. These are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Not going to clap me? Okay, thanks. I like this because it's the really typically rich Shakespearean metaphor in that it's these things which are mentioned really casually, only for a line or two, or alluded to, but they're so kind of dense that you can just ponder them and kind of enjoy it for for hours on end, as, mm. as weird as that sounds. Like, it just inspires a lot of thoughts and images and other stories in me. Secondly, it's this presence of the pastoral imagery, which appears in a lot of the plays, especially the comedies, and often contrasted with the kind of trials of courtly life so i think we feel that today more than ever like this escapism mm. because a lot of us don't even have the reference of what he's talking about here his sweet woods and stuff and thirdly even though there's a lot of literary devices and some of them quite quite complex i feel like it's rarely showy and it's almost always in mm. service to the emotion of the passage rather than anything else like I, I think someone who's not doesn't have a great vocabulary or hasn't studied literature could could listen to what i just said and kind of get the feel of it maybe it's because it's read but also i think it's plain enough like it's it's not that indecipherable as maybe its reputation kind of is because of what i was saying about the way it's introduced in school yeah i think so often in films you can tell it's kind of pretentious it's just like this is that's the word for it a lot of words to say nothing but mm. this is a lot of words but it's to get across a complex emotion feeling sensation situation and i think as you said even if you don't know the words you can get the feeling for it mm. whereas when something's pretentious it's intentionally not accessible it's only meant to be understood by a certain type of person yeah i had a few more thoughts about what we can take away for the solo scene and then a quote that we can maybe end on. So the first one for the solo scene is we can be as the characters in Shakespeare's plays open and present and articulate if nothing else. Like the villains, the heroes, the side characters, poor, rich, almost everyone expresses themselves kind of honestly and well through mm. speech. And I was reading a book I've been reading a book called uh, Speaking Shakespeare, which is for actors. And it's, it is a little bit self-important about how Shakespeare is like the Everest for actors that you cannot go into unprepared or you will die. And you need to learn to speak the certain way and breathe the certain way and be centered and be open. And there's a lot of practical tips. But the main message it gave, which really resonates with me, is that most people today either are bluffing so it said which means like if you have to speak to people you're very consciously putting on too much of an air of um command or like something your like customer that. service voice customer service voice or you're speaking too loudly or you're mm. really consciously trying to move your hands to illustrate oh, certain no. points or there's an artifice to it or you're going in the other direction and you're deliberately trying to be too coolly cool and you're like slurring your words and slouching and you know you don't really care about anything and that's present in the way that you talk and it was kind of saying there's a middle way which is honest but also effective 
And you can practice speaking. That's not necessarily uh, an inauthentic thing. And we should do this as people. Like We should be conscious of how we communicate. Even though we've been doing this podcast for two years, I'm still always frustrated by the way that we talk mm. on here with too many ums and ahs and kind of non sequiturs and just, you know, it's a little bit too much of that sometimes. Speaking with conviction is certainly something that everyone lacks today. Conviction. And because of that, I believe society has come to a point where it's a lot of nothingness because people won't speak their mind mm. so there's no conflict, conflict to then yeah. create something new right, that was like in shakespeare's plays as in his time men walked around with daggers yeah you know you know what i mean like there was a sense of we're not just going to be cool cool and obviously people shouldn't be dueling to, no. to sort out disputes but there shouldn't always should, be disputes but maybe there should be some disputes yeah when I was reading Ecotopia, it was talking about how in this utopian future, people would just like yell at each other in the streets. But it was saying, this is really weird. This seems like an unhealthy society. But the result of it was always they got out their feelings and therefore could then come to a solution instead of just bottling up their feelings. And I find we're just powering things back to nothingness instead of... To like try and make ourselves feel comfortable by not like airing agreements, we're like okay, just like kind of letting it go. Yeah, but I don't think that's good for the future. Second point about Shakespeare: excellence kind of goes without saying, but just being really good at things. And this doesn't mean you have to be a historic or worldwide talent at something, but it means at your tasks, try, try. And I think even things that you're not that aren't your job it's just more about being curious and especially the way that we satisfy that curiosity that curiosity is so important because if it's like oh i wonder about what kind of trees these are google it find an answer forget mm -hmm. it immediately because it took so such a short amount of time to find it so it's about maybe yeah. the balance of study with convenience i suppose two two ideas from that one is the nature of the jobs that we're doing today are often not conducive to excellence because if you were trying to do them excellently there's no reward but even i started a job where it's a lot of cleaning and made like it's not changing the world but it's at least physical and i can see the results of my extra work that i perhaps put yeah. in but when it's all on the computer putting in extra work is really just Beep, boop, beep, boop. like it's not getting anywhere because yeah. it's kind of infinite whenever i talk to my friends who work in tech they're like yeah i've been working on this one bug for like six months <laughs> and it's like how does that feel spending six months on something that's not even at least like building a structure you know i don't think everything has to be physical like it can be intellectual work but i think reshaping the nature of our jobs to be conducive to excellence and doing everything to the best of your ability the second thought I had was Shakespeare and a lot of the Renaissance people were like polymaths, so people who are good at a lot of things, but also people who love learning. Mm -hmm. And I think we should instill that in children from a young age and try and reinstill it in ourselves, the value of learning stuff for the sake of it. 
Yeah, I got you a bird watching book, and it's like there's really going to be no value in you learning all of the birds besides the joy of being like, huh, I know what that bird is. And then there's the unobvious ways that it will inform your writing, inform your metaphors, inform Mm -hmm. perhaps how you perceive a Shakespeare play. He features a certain bird, and you're like, oh, I know what that one is. Yeah. It's meaning, it's location, maybe it's weird because it was out of a... Yeah, that's the funny thing about learning is that it doesn't scale linearly. Like It's kind of exponential. You learn, you learn one thing and it helps you a little bit, but then if you learn just a little bit more, like you learn, it helps you a ton more. Like I found that mm-hmm. even with, with reading certain classics, it's like, it's nice that you read this, but then you see it pop up in every other place and you mm-hmm. don't, suddenly you don't have to go to the footnote because you you know that immediately. Mm-hmm. And then if you know that, then maybe it'll help you figure out the next one and the next one. Yeah, I'm reading 1Q84, which is Murakami's like biggest chunky book. And even reading that, there's Japanese words sprinkled throughout it. And I've obviously, we're big fans of Studio Ghibli. I've read other like translated Japanese books. And so it's like slowly, by exposing myself to this language <laughs> that I have no intention of learning right now, I am at least like getting references to religious hmm. um, things to historical events that I had no idea about before starting to read these books. You're like, oh, Porco. Yeah. Reference. <laughs> well, this book that I was reading, another one, um, was referencing the Moomins, which was funny because yeah. it was a Japanese book set in Germany referencing the Moomins. I thought it was just kind of funny. And then lastly, I kind of mentioned it earlier with the just the energy of the globe and what it must have felt like to have a dominant art form that everybody's going to and flocking to and being like, what story are we going to be told by a a real master today? And we kind of have this in the cinema. And I think that the the Bavi and Oppenheimer thing last year was a really great example of this. It was young people all flocking. It's a little bit meme and like social media thing, but it's never always a, an entirely kind of purist's uh, uh, haven these places but i just think if it wasn't a cineplex like that would be really the the one that's really all it takes is it not being a cineplex and i'm 100 percent on board even if the films are produced by disney i'm like at least it's not all going to big cineplex i had a quote from the shakespeare biography that i've been reading which kind of talks about how shakespeare stood on this on this brink of the old times and the new which I thought was maybe a little bit analogous to the solar scene. The book is at least partly about the fact that we don't read anything else from that old in its original text in English. We don't have really surviving mm. traditions like that. So Shakespeare's somewhat unique. And it said, In his parents' day, England had been a traditional society, a land of rude screens and female saints, holy wells and incantation magic, church ales and painted devils. Like many of his generation, Shakespeare knew that lost world through his parents. His tales exist on a profound psychological level, transcending language in their portrayal of character, love, and friendship, power, and suffering. Across cultures, they have the entertaining and educative power of the fairy tales they often shadow, but they work on other levels too. His background enabled Shakespeare to incorporate into his drama the beliefs, the active mythology, and the imagery of the pre-Reformation world. His characters are its kings and queens, priests and witches, Mothers and fathers, clowns and fairies. This no doubt helps explain his great popularity in the eyes of his own audience, but it also helps us understand his continuing relevance today. He brings back to life the world we have lost. This will perhaps become even more apparent in the 21st century as, 
Through globalization and technological advancements, our past accelerates away from us at an ever faster rate. So it's food for thought. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe on YouTube and you can contact us in the link below if you want to send us an email. Bye.